no pasaran. Right, as the world goes, is only in question between equals in power, while the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War October 2010 Raising money while having a lawsuit over your head is like walking into a singles bar with a t-shirt announcing, I'm HIV positive, how about you? It doesn't bode well for your prospects. You can't not tell potential investors, although you can stave off telling them until their greedy little pens are hovering right over the dotted line, at which point you drop the bomb and hope they don't run screaming. I took a sad roll call of all the investors we had been talking to and were inching to a close and told them the news. Many of them bailed. Some stayed in tenuously but wanted to know more about the suit and its potential costs. As much as we tried to downplay it, just the price of doing business, they wanted details. So I had to put them on the phone with the undertaker, who would give them an edited lowdown on the situation, and then I'd hope they'd return my calls. Russ and Sokka, to their everlasting credit, did not bail at the first sign of trouble. They had the most money verbally committed. Russ was the presumptive lead of the round, and the biggest check, and Sokka was our big name. But my Wall Street quant's heart knew that if we managed to raise, that risk would be priced into our funding terms, one way or the other. In order to get a damage control estimate I could, maybe, show to investors, I had the undertaker prepare a detailed breakdown of every step of the litigation process, along with the respective price tag, all the way out to a full jury trial. The numbers were staggering. It would cost us a full half million just to get to the actual trial, plus another half million or more after that. Altogether, we were looking at around $1.5 million for the full lawsuit, including judgment and final wrap-up, stretching out over the next 18 months. As any good aspiring CEO would do, I made an Excel spreadsheet, for in tabular data lies truth. It listed all our realistic expenses projected for the next year, along with predicted legal costs and their probable timeline, discovery in six months, trial in 12 months, and so on. It wouldn't be a startup without some glib optimism, so I included revenue numbers based on a near-term launch and some percent growth rate in users and monetization. Finally, I plotted our running cash on hand on a line graph, with time on the lower axis, and pondered the trajectory. The plot resembled the infographic that accompanies every newspaper article on an airline catastrophe. First a plateau, then the sudden start of a descent. Was it engine failure? Pilot error? and then a precipitous drop right into the ground, a burning, fuel-soaked hole decorated with singed clothes and body parts, the ultimate result. No matter what numbers I used for revenue, costs, or legal expenses, the Adgrok airplane would not stay airborne. Footnote. There's a cliché in the valley that doing a startup is like jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. How high the cliff is and how much time you have before death are a pure function of how much money you've raised. In our case, someone was also shooting at us with an anti-aircraft battery. End footnote. Even if we didn't have the lawsuit hanging over us, it would have been dicey, but we'd have had more runway at least. Every way I tried to slice the data in the cash burn spreadsheet, which we nicknamed the death clock, I saw no way we could realistically defend ourselves in a lawsuit with as little as $400,000 to $500,000 raised. We would bleed $20,000 a month in legal fees, and between that and salary and expenses, be dead in the water after nine months to a year, at most. I didn't show the projections to the boys. It would just depress them pointlessly. I also didn't share it with investors. Adgrok was dead on arrival if this got out. So I lied. I diminished the costs of the lawsuit to far below the undertaker's projections, meanwhile moving our projected launch date forward to next month to generate revenues immediately, an impossibility given all the changes the boys were making to the product. Then I jacked up the growth rate to an unconscionable amount. It was outright chicanery, cooking the books in the worst form. But it was either that or give up now, and surrender was unthinkable. I still can't believe the investors believed my numbers but they did. Russ, who had offered to lead the round and was therefore absolutely pivotal to our pulling this off, seemed particularly assuaged by the projections. He must have been willfully blind to them, or I just wore him down in phone call after phone call. To my mute surprise, he offered to continue to lead the round, 
but at a valuation cap of $2 million instead of the $4 million we had discussed in his breakfast nook. Also, since he didn't want to be injecting money into a corpse, he conditioned his investment on our finding at least another $200,000 in additional investor money as well, so between him and the rest we'd have at least around a half million as war chest. Russ's counteroffer presented a sliver of hope. By having our effective valuation, we would raise enough to at least pay ourselves and keep the machine going. We'd sell way more of the company in a seed round, about 22%, than was typical, and this would raise eyebrows when it came time to raise a Series A. Investors don't like it when a prior round of investors had bought a huge part of the company. It means that either they have to take down less of the company in their round, or the founders have to give up a lot of their share to top up the new investors and hence lessen their incentive to do well. Also, investors like to feel you're their bitch or their boy when they wire you a bunch of money, and some other pack of money men also having you by the short hairs mutes that sense of ownership. At this point, Series A drama was safely in the problems we'd like to have category. We'd figure it out if we ever got there. This was like worrying about your cholesterol while you were dying of cancer. So the problems were now reduced to finding another $200,000, plus seeing if we could somehow mitigate our legal bill either by negotiating a deal with Fenwick or by crushing Murthy. In terms of the money, if we could convince Sokka to up his investment from $100,000 to $200,000, we'd be there. Or pile in more investors. After all was said and done, with lots of artificial urgency and investor divide and conquer, it was a bit of both. Sokka wrote a bigger check than planned, and we got some more hangers-on in the round. A brief discussion here, to give you a taste of the tech lunacy. Remember Ben Nerison, he of the sockless topsiders? Well, he shepherded us past Triple Point's partner meeting and got us a yes. As was often done in these seed situations, the VC who sourced the deal would personally participate via his own cash, as well as an investment from the fund itself. And so while Triple Point would wire us money eventually, Ben wanted to hand us a check now. Perhaps inspired by Ben's side career in food and wine writing, I proposed meeting at Lolo, one of these culinary fusion experiments that smacked of an intercultural marriage. Turkish-Mexican tapas and multicolored decor that could be best described as kaleidoscopic kitsch were the setting for the only paper check we'd ever collect. But as always with Narison, nothing was ever simple, and after a half hour of staccato repartee, he realized he actually hadn't brought a checkbook. Oh, wait, hold on, I think I've got a spare check. He whipped out a worn-looking leather wallet from his khakis and went fishing around inside. He came up with a faded and wrinkled loose slip of paper, that emergency check some people keep wedged into their wallets in case they find themselves cashless. Who do I make it out to again? The check was from a Schwab account, no doubt the small bean slush fund that handled his everyday banking as well as maybe the odd public equity. Electron Mine Inc., I replied, using our original incorporated name. Our name for marketing purposes had changed a half dozen times. Ruminate for a moment on a class of people who write rumpled $50,000 checks as an afterthought. After I finally got the money in my hot little hand, Narison distracted himself by pointing out the photos of his children he had in his wallet, which he had spread out on the bar while digging around for his bail-me-out-of-jail check. Look, this is who you're working for right here. He proceeded to give us the full Proud Father walkthrough. I looked at MRM, who had come along, and hoped he wouldn't say something tactless. Finally done, we walked out into the stink and sunlight of the Mission District. Well, what about my kids we're working for, huh? MRM asked. Of course MRM would say that. Like many hardcore engineers, the man was incapable of lying and or reading a social situation. I'm glad he held his tongue for all of 30 seconds. More firewood on the Adgrok bonfire. The next chunk of change came from a more mysterious, if not as amusing, source. I had spotted him during one of my wanderings around YC's demo day. His slim physique, fitted European-style shirt, and expensive haircut set him apart from the sartorial catastrophes surrounding him. My surmise was right. Chris Kyle was Swiss and represented Ace & Company, an opaque family fund run out of Sound of Music land. The most I ever got out of him about the provenance of the money was that it supposedly involved an Egyptian mobile telecoms fortune. Or that was the story, at least. 
What I know for certain is when it came time to make the tip jar ring, our dinky business account got a wire from a Swiss private bank based in Zouk. Zouk is where African dictators, Latin American narcos, Russian oligarchs, and Lebanese arms dealers go to retire. But who was a Cuban boy raised in 80s Miami kidding? A little red never made money less green. Another log on the fire. All told, four investors stayed in the running despite all the lawsuit drama, and the amount raised came to about half a million. Even in those pre-bubbly days, this was a small round. But you go to war with the army and the war chest that you have. Remember, though, this was all based on a lie. Even with that cash in the bank, we'd never survive the lawsuit. This merely meant we wouldn't die just then. Could we mitigate the costs some way? I had asked high-end lawyers like Ted Wang and others for referrals to cheaper legal options. Every leading firm has a short list of cut-rate attorneys, usually one-man shops run by some more or less decent lawyer who had maybe burnt out or hadn't made partner at the referring firm. Their hourlies were in the $400 per hour range rather than the $600 to $700 per hour range of the major leagues. I spoke to these solo practitioners. Their attitude was that of the nickel-and-dime shyster who gets you out of a speeding ticket. They wouldn't consider equity as payment and didn't give a damn about the startup ecosystem. Cash, as always, is the poor man's credit. It would actually have been more expensive to go with the cheaper lawyer, as that bill would be paid in crisp green Benjamins rather than equity funny money. No, we'd need to get Ted Wang on board somehow. There's a corny math joke about a lecherous French mathematician who is both married and keeps a mistress. How does he manage to get any work done? Well, he tells the wife he's with the mistress, tells the mistress that he's with the wife, and then goes to his office and proves theorems, which is more or less what I did at Adgrok. I told the lawyers that we had raised money and were on the fast track to success, and wouldn't they want to participate by accepting payment in shares? Then I told the investors that they could invest without fear, as the legal costs were minimal, and in any case, the lawyers were accepting shares in lieu of cash. Meanwhile, our Geary's and MRM went to the office and coded. Easier joked about than done. Ted Wang didn't want to accept equity now that we presumably had money, and he felt that he was practically subsidizing Russ by even entertaining the thought, which of course he was. It became a game of vitriolic bipolar telephone, with phone call after phone call, alternately to either Russ or Ted, each speaker on the phone angrier than the last and refusing to yield an inch to the other. Hi, Ted, this is Antonio, I declared, while pacing my unofficial Via Dolorosa of Anxiety, 9th Street in Alameda, the street bordering British traders' bungalow. Look, the investors are in, we've got the money to keep the company going, but not cover the suit. I am absolutely not paying for a lawsuit while some rich guy profits from it. And so it went. Finally, through a combination of guile, greed, and simple stubbornness, we convinced Fenwick to accept the piece of Adgrok in exchange for defending it. They'd front us $250,000 in legal fees, essentially a loan, in exchange for a percent of equity and a handful of equity options. For us, it was a marvelous trade. If the lawsuit went south and the company was finished, we'd never repay a dime. If we won the suit, we'd pay a small fraction of equity, capture all the upside, and live to fight another day. Fuck, we'd have taken the deal even if we had to hand over half the company. Even worse for Fenwick, if we somehow escaped the lawsuit and did have a great run of usage, revenue, or luck, we could simply pay the Fenwick bill in cash out of earnings or our next funding round. There was no prepayment penalty on the deal, as there is in some bonds or mortgages, and we could simply nullify their rights to our equity by buying it out with cash. Since the equity Fenwick got was at our current valuation, this would be no different from buying out an early investor at his or her low buy-in price. Put another way, we had sold Fenwick a one-in-a-million lottery ticket to win $250,000 for $250,000. At best, they'd be even. At worst, we'd owe absolutely nothing, and everything in between was a gift from Fenwick to Adgrok. My quant's mind reeled at the complete mispricing of this risk. It was like the laws of physics had been upended, and I was witnessing an elephant pirouetting on the tip of a chopstick. The terms were horrible for Fenwick, our idealistic legal saviors, a complete preluved ass-fuck of a deal. Well, you can take the man out of Goldman, but you can't take Goldman out of the man, can you? 
Ted, thanks so much for your kind offer. We'd gladly accept those terms. Please send the engagement letter immediately. Done deal. We had money in the bank for salaries, rent, and servers, and our legal defense was now subsidized. Adgrok had survived its first existential threat, though we weren't out of the fight yet. It was time to take care of Murthy once and for all. There are worse ways of monetizing sociopathy than startups. If you know better ways, I'm listening. How did Microsoft secure a monopoly on the PC desktop, creating multiple billion-dollar fortunes and ensuring a tech hegemony that has lasted decades? Briefly, Bill Gates came from wealthy Seattle aristocracy. During the early 80s, his mother served on the executive committee of the United Way, along with IBM's then-CEO, John Opel. This allowed William Henry Gates III, her son, to score a meeting with IBM about providing a code compiler for IBM's new epic-making product, the IBM PC. What IBM really wanted, though, was an operating system, the core code that manages memory and runs programs. Gates, whose nascent company, Microsoft, didn't have anything like an entire operating system, honestly referred IBM to a company run by Gary Kildall, a pioneer in operating systems when the real money in computers was still in the hardware. In a story couched in legend, Kildall was off flying his personal plane when IBM representatives physically came knocking at his company's office. His wife, the company's business manager, refused to sign IBM's aggressive non-disclosure agreement and sent them packing, and so IBM grudgingly went back to Gates asking about operating systems. Gates, smelling an opportunity, offered to provide one, hiring a local Seattle programmer to clone Kildall's operating system, then called QDOS, Quick and Dirty Operating System, which eventually shipped in the IBM PC as DOS, Disk Operating System. Gates, correctly suspecting that other hardware companies would copy IBM's approach of bundling software separately from hardware, retained copyright over this hacked and copied DOS. As a result, the proceeds from the new computing world where hardware was interchangeable but software was not, rather than the reverse, which was the status quo in 1980, accrued to Gates and Microsoft rather than IBM. That licensing arrangement became what we now know as Microsoft, as it grew to provide everything from word processing, can we still use that term, to browsers, calendars, and all the rest of the worker bee software armamentarium, and Kildall, IBM eventually threw him a bone by offering his original operating system alongside Microsoft's, but it was too little too late, and it flopped. Fast forward 35 years. Gates now tours Africa as a great philanthropist and single-handedly cures malaria. Kildall eventually succumbed to alcoholism, dying in mysterious circumstances, probably a drunken brawl, in a Monterey biker bar at age 52. To quote Balzac, the secret of great fortunes without apparent cause is a forgotten crime, as the crime was properly done. Never was a crime better concealed. Steve Jobs, if I were to even attempt a brief account of Jobs' crimes, based on his well-documented biographies, it would fill the rest of the book. A representative anecdote. In 1975, Stephen Jobs was a literally smelly hippie, fresh from a religious pilgrimage to India, working as a low-level technician at Atari. He was an arrogant, destructive presence who pissed off everyone except Atari's CEO, Nolan Bushnell, who was impressed with Jobs' wide-ranging intellect and saved him from being fired. Bushnell wanted to turn Pong, the legendary two-player game that launched the video game revolution, into a single-player version that would eventually be called Breakout. Older readers will surely remember. Back in the day, a new game required hardware as well as software, with the former being more important. Bushnell announced a $700 prize for anyone who could design a hardware-software combo that would power the game, with a $1,000 bonus for every chip that was saved in manufacturing the circuit. Chips used to be expensive. Jobs convinced his eventual Apple co-founder, Steve Woz Wozniak, to take on the project, stipulating it had to be done in four days to fit his social schedule. He had to go pick apples at a utopian commune. Woz worked like hell, with Jobs doing the manual labor of testing the designed circuits, and they made the deadline. Jobs, however, never told Woz about the bonuses, having mentioned only the base prize. He gave Woz $350, shortchanging his collaborator, who had made the entire thing possible and used the stolen cash to finance his lifestyle. 
Steve Jobs was all smoldering ambition, ruthless will to power, and narcissistic amour propre. By all accounts of people who actually worked with him, he was a mediocre engineer who had good taste and knew how to recognize in others talents he didn't possess and got them to work like hell for him, while fending off competitors in the meantime. In that sense, he was the absolute exemplar of your successful startup CEO, even if not in the way people commonly think. Oh, and Zuckerberg? As is now public record, the Facebook idea, not that ideas alone are worth much, was stolen from a pack of entitled Ivy League brats, now notable angel investors, who had contracted him to implement it. He implemented, but then decided he rather liked the idea and ran with it. Eventually, Facebook would pay tens of millions in damages to the aforementioned Ivy Leaguers, though not without evidently shortchanging them, even in the settlement. Footnote. The Winklevoss twins, progenitors of the Facebook idea, scions of Yankee wealth, and both Olympic-class rowers, seem lifted from the pages of an Ian Fleming novel. They would appeal their eventual settlement, claiming Facebook swindled them in the actual value of Facebook stock at the time of their judgment. The court disagreed. End footnote. We can come down from the rarefied heights of Gates and Jobs now. You'll have to trust me on this. The story of just about every early-stage startup is peppered with tales such as mine. Backroom deals negotiated via phone calls to leave no legal trace, behind-the-back betrayals of investors or co-founders, seductive duping of credulous employees so they work for essentially nothing, for example, Adkami itself. The picture I painted of Adgrok, and there's more sordidness where this came from, not to worry, is not some weird exception. It is the absolute rule. The tech startup scene, for all its pretensions of transparency, principled innovation, and a counterculture renouncement of pressed shirts and staid social convention, is actually a surprisingly reactionary crowd. Its members preen and puff and protect their public image, like a Victorian lady powdering her nose, and refuse to acknowledge anything contrary to their well-marketed exteriors. Sure, it's no worse than traditional industry or politics, but certainly no better either. In the case of Adgrok, this meant no subterfuge, no underhanded blow would be disallowed. In the startup game, there are no real rules, only laws, and weakly enforced ones at that. In the end, success would forgive any sins, as it did for Gates and Jobs, and continues to do for countless startup entrepreneurs. Do we begrudge David the use of his sling, after all, against the towering giant Goliath? The Dog Shit Sandwich Footnote This memorable coinage came from Ted Wang, the Silicon Valley power lawyer, who vowed there'd be no eating of dog shit sandwiches, when the legal saber-rattling started, he'd be quite wrong. End footnote. Starting a company is like eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. Elon Musk, founder of PayPal, Tesla Motors, and SpaceX. October 2010. Adkami was holding a legal gun to our heads. Fenwick and West provided us with our own gun, but the reality was we couldn't afford a long, drawn-out standoff, as much because of the time as the money. The only way to win was to subtly find Murthy's balls and hold a cold, sharp knife up against them until he saw the light of reason. Given that corporate extinction and personal financial ruin were the alternatives, any means would be acceptable. There are two weak points for tech companies, no matter how large, their investors and their potential business partners. The former influence even obdurate company leaders both by personal sway and by the fact that they often occupy voting seats on the board. If the founders lack leverage at fundraising time, the CEO will be outnumbered on the board, and he serves at the pleasure of voting board members. This is how CEOs get voted out of office, like prime ministers via a no-confidence vote in parliamentary democracies. If keeping your job depends on pleasing someone else, even if your business card says CEO, You've got a collar around your neck attached to a leash, and that leash can be yanked. The other weakness is potential business partners. Shipping new product is one thing, but deals are where the startup rubber hits the revenue road. If the product is enterprise software, as it was for Adkami, that meant a handful of deals a year was the company's entire commercial livelihood. A few big contracts, and that's what its long-term prospects ran off. 
If these were partnerships rather than deals, that is, an almost matrimonial coupling between usually a larger company and a smaller, then the stakes were even higher. These partnerships, like some potential royal marriage, hinged on a delicate combination of greed, long-term strategy, and a certain mutual seduction. Ugly realities like lawsuits, no matter how petty, dissolved the magic and would send the more powerful partner fleeing. Even large companies with billions in capital fear public shaming and legal quagmires. So we had our balls to go after. Now for the knives. One Adkami employee over drinks had unknowingly leaked to me that Adkami was working on a major deal with Microsoft. This was news. The only prior pile of big stupid money that salesman Murthy had managed to woo into the kitty was from Accenture. Adkami was running gigantic losses, with no chance of turning on real product revenue beyond the lead generation business. To keep the sham alive, Murthy needed to pull in someone else. Something big. Fifty million big, or even bigger. Microsoft was an obvious choice, as its also-ran search engine, Bing, was always eager to win advertisers and users away from the Google behemoth. Given the utter disaster in display advertising we had witnessed while at Adkami, it was clear Murthy was turning his attention to the more mature search market as his last business bet. By playing to Microsoft's inferiority complex in the search business, Murthy was wooing himself some financial oxygen. We had to find a way to get to Microsoft. For our second knife, there were the VCs. Adkami's venture capital patrons were two absolutely first-class blue-chip firms, August Capital and the Mayfield Fund. The partners at those funds were John Johnston at August, whose comically waspy name matched his appearance and pedigree. At Mayfield, it was Yogan Dalal, the usual cocktail of the Indian Institute of Technology and Stanford that populated many a Silicon Valley boardroom. We had leverage over such Silicon Valley players thanks to funding trends that were then seizing Silicon Valley and are now so commonplace as to scarcely merit mention. Here's why. Traditionally, early-stage startup funding was the exclusive province of either the entrepreneur's personal wealth, friends and family, or business angels. In their original form, angel investors were wealthy individuals, often former entrepreneurs themselves, who for fun or profit punted around in embryonic companies. Most companies simply die in this early stage. Those that succeed raise their first real and hefty round on the Series A. There, the numbers are much larger, in the millions, and beyond the range of most affluent individuals. Historically, most professional venture capitalists would not mess around at the seed stage, and some even abstain from investing in early rounds like a Series A. With vast funds of outside money to invest, in the hundreds of millions, the VC masters of the universe would not waste their time writing piddly $50,000 checks. Footnote. The insider term for outside money is LPs, or limited partners. These are the enormous family funds, think the Google founders and the Walton family, investment portfolios and pension funds that, as part of a larger, generally conservative investment strategy, allocate some of their money to speculative, high-yield investments. They're limited partners in that while they write the initial big checks that get the ball rolling, they have no official impact on the eventual investment decisions, and are contractually obliged to keep their money in the mix for years. End footnote. With the rise, in 2010 or so, of the tech bubble whose ever more frothy heights we're witnessing even now, that entire script changed. Google and a passel of Silicon Valley acquisitions made very rich men of many Valley players. In the self-perpetuating genius of the Valley, that wealth wanted to create more tech wealth, creating an almost embarrassing glut of early-stage angel investor money. Not only did many of these startup pickers invest their own money, they raised small funds in the $20 million to $40 million range to scale their stakes in budding companies. Angels who used to write $20,000 checks on a deal could now easily write one for $200,000 or more, for example, our boy Sokka. In tandem, the popularity of accelerators like Y Combinator, plus a general acceptance of entrepreneurship as a career, meant lots of very skilled engineers and product people were skipping the corporate trajectory and building exciting products. The emergence of turnkey, on-demand computation like Amazon Web Services, plus off-the-shelf web development frameworks like Ruby on Rails, meant that new ideas were easier than ever to test. 
Many entrepreneurs chose to build shovels rather than dig for gold, creating more complex software building blocks to underpin the innovation, such as back-end services like Parse, accelerating the startup explosion in an almost exponential way. The net of all this change was that seed rounds were now reaching levels of former A rounds. A two-month-old company with a persuasive CEO raising $2 million and calling it a seed was not shocking news. With a short time to market and rapid technical development, that company could be hitting its milestones in six months and raising its next round. With so much money of all sizes and levels waiting to invest, the best entrepreneurs had the luxury of choosing investors rather than vice versa, and many investors found themselves anxiously trying to get into rounds. Due to contracts stipulating that investors in one round had the right to invest in the next, as well as personal ties between investors and entrepreneurs, investors getting in on oversubscribed A rounds had to be there in the seed round to earn that place. And that was true going up the various funding levels. That means VCs who would formerly say, get back to me when you're raising a Series A or B, kid, were basically blocked from popular companies by investors who had nurtured and supported the company since it had been two guys in a trashy office. Heavyweight funds like Mayfield and August knew this and started doing seed investing, not to own some little piece of a company. They could write small checks all day and still not invest their entire funds, but merely as an option on the real rounds down the road. Which brings us, finally, to our point. In the day-to-day, -day, the lifeblood of a VC wasn't money. It was deal flow. Getting a first look at a potential Uber or Airbnb is what distinguished a first-class VC from an also-ran. Given Y Combinator's immense success in drawing the best entrepreneurs, it had a quasi-stranglehold on the best early-stage deal flow in the Valley. And since early-stage deal flow today translated into later-stage deal flow tomorrow via the follow-on investing phenomena described, Y Combinator was the gatekeeper to the best present and future deals in the valley. Like control of the water supply in some arid agricultural region, whoever had the most upstream control of the water sluice controlled everything else, which is what Y Combinator's demo day represented. Thus, powerful and haughty VCs who wanted to attend Y Combinator's showcase pitch event had to kneel and kowtow to a sandal-wearing bear of a man with a distaste for bullshit and a flair for the written word. That man was Paul Graham, without question the canniest tech investor in human history. And it was to Paul Graham we first turned with our existential problem in those desperate days. Like all parents, PG pretends he loves all his startup children equally. The reality is some companies get more of his attention than others. Given the conditional nature of his love, it was somewhat in doubt if he would run to Adgrok's aid in light of the pissy, messy nature of our conflict. After all, we were a middle-of-the-pack company from our batch, not a high-flyer like Hipmunk or Indonero. We needn't have worried. Even if we were the runt bastard child of the family, Papa PG brought all his protectiveness to bear. In a world where superficial relationships and glib bullshit are the rule, there's nothing more fearsome than to see true loyalty at work. PG mustered YC's full network for our cause. It was all the more impressive because I had miscast PG as a sort of avuncular academic presence who dabbled in dense essays about startups, hosted founder dinners, and wrote a few checks. Nothing could be further from the truth. Y Combinator was the sort of unforgiving power player that remembered the names of investors who had crossed portfolio companies in the past or who had disseminated unflattering portraits of YC and blacklisted them from any YC dealings or from the minds of YC founders. This was done with little thought of the size of their funds or their influence in the valley, leaving more than one self-important VC sputtering at a dressing down or left out of a round because the company's founders had gotten a warning from PG. The harsh reality is this. To have influence in the world, you need to be willing and able to reward your friends and punish your enemies. So it was with some relief that we learned that Paul Graham emailed Murthy to discuss the matter. Murthy, who was as much a sycophant with outsiders when he needed something as he was a tyrant with adkami people, replied praising his work and declaring himself to be a YC fan of many years. A long, meandering email thread had ensued. I wasn't CC'd, but PG forwarded me a copy. Finally, an email to me from PG. 
Come meet me at home to discuss this on Saturday. Come alone, don't bring the others, and try to keep them out of it. Another brief lesson in startups. Whenever you face some stressful, time-consuming, and risky challenge, firewall the rest of the company away from the mess. They'll likely add no value, and the attendant uncertainty will corrode their productivity when you likely need it most. No matter what happens in the outside world, lawsuit, money issues, the fucking zombie apocalypse, do not let it infect the company's headspace and become the top item in the internal narrative. So I arrived alone at the PG compound in Old Palo Alto. It was in the neo-Spanish style so beloved of California architects, Stanford University itself being a good example. There seemed to be no front door to the compound. I rounded the corner it spanned, looking for somewhere to knock. There was a bicycle leaning against a wall with a helmet hanging from the handlebars thrown casually next to a small door that hung ajar. Tentatively, I wandered through. Paul Graham, the valley's most successful tech investor, emerged from the compound's large kitchen in his standard, never-changing uniform of a raggedy orange polo shirt, khaki shorts, and Birkenstocks, no socks. I had literally never seen the man in anything else. With little in the way of build-up or greeting, PG started in. I went over to Wilson Sonsini, probably the first person to ever show up on a bicycle. I could picture the scene of P.G. strolling in in his burk, still perspiring mildly from the ride, and telling the first partner he ran into, We need to talk about this Adgrok thing. Before we got too deep into the conspiring, Jessica, P.G.'s wife and Y.C. co-partner, came out to discuss lunch. What ensued was a minor squabble over some leftover pasta and why it was gone, and who had planned on eating it that afternoon. P.G. looked a little miffed. I looked away to give them at least a bit of cosmetic privacy, but I was inwardly amused. I guess even YC partners quibble over who ate the leftover spaghetti. The lunch situation patched up. PG shared his anti-Adkami game plan. In a nutshell, YC would anathematize Adkami's VCs and declare that they'd never do business with YC again unless they straightened this out. Knowing PG, not only would they be disinvited from Demo Day, but PG would probably also steer companies to take money from other funds instead. Given that many, if not most, YC funding rounds were oversubscribed with investors, an excommunicated investor could be excluded without damaging the fundraising company at all. At the end of the day, who really gave a shit if the check came from August versus Sequoia? That money was just as green either way. That meant that those funds would start losing YC deals wholesale to their competitors, and as we reviewed earlier, getting locked out in the early rounds likely meant the same in the even juicier later ones. PG was about to flush a whole chunk of their deal flow down the toilet, just like that. I smiled, imagining the sputtering fits pitched by the partners over at Mayfield in August when PG read them the riot act. YC was actually willing to sever ties with some of the most illustrious names in Valley Investing over the piss squirt that was Adgrok. It may seem like nothing to you, reader, who maybe inhabits a normal realm of 21st century economic life where things like tit-for-tat reciprocity enforce social codes. But in the passive-aggressive popularity contest that is Silicon Valley, someone actually going to bat for you, really going to bat, like telling important people to go fuck themselves, that's rarer and more short-lived than a snowflake in a bonfire. I thanked PG profusely, and then he padded back into the kitchen for his lunch. I decided I wouldn't tell the boys anything about the meeting. If PG's push resulted in nothing, it would only disappoint them. Knife to Ball's application process commenced. The next knife requires some explanation. Coincidentally, it also involved a future head of YC, but at the time, he was just a startup founder like me though an exceptional one. YC was constantly experimenting with new events and mechanisms to tweak its founder experience and provide improved mentorship, or more aggressive networking and fundraising. One such event was Angel Day, which had arrived around the middle of our YC experience and was announced in an email to the entire batch. It involved pitching a mini version of our eventual Demo Day presentation to a select group of elite YC investors. As with a talent show, those investors then voted on which companies they wanted to talk to, and after computing the tally, we were given two angels to prepare us for the eventual fundraising hootenanny. We drew two very notable Silicon Valley figures, Jean-Francois Jeff Clavier and Sam Altman. 
Sam Altman is the current head of Y Combinator and the person whom Paul Graham has entrusted with transforming his brainchild into a long-lived and scalable institution. In 2010, he was CEO and founder of Looped, a company that had pioneered the location check-in product that Foursquare would later eclipse, only to itself stumble, and which Facebook eventually worked into its product. At the time, though, Looped was still a location player, and Sam would take an hour out of his busy week, usually late afternoon on a Friday, to field whatever questions I had, no agenda required. The boys came along for the first session, and never again. I think they were scared of him, and with good reason. In one of PG's essays on desirable founder qualities, he had this to say about Sam. You could parachute him into an island full of cannibals and come back in five years, and he'd be the king. I believed it, as did the boys. His official Adgrock nickname was Manson Lamps, after Tony Soprano's psychotic rival, who possessed an intense and unsettling stare. This was a flip and admittedly unfair comparison. Sam never proved himself anything other than a capable operator and loyal friend to YC companies. I'm high-strung, fast-talking, and wired on a combination of caffeine, fear, and greed at all times. But Sama, as he is known on Hacker News and Twitter, really takes the cake. After an hour with him, I was looking for the closest beer bar. Standing maybe 5'7", lean and wiry, with perpetually hunched shoulders, he has clear blue eyes of an unusual intensity. A typical meeting would involve him conducting a conversation about A with a side tangent on topic B while considering C and simultaneously texting on his phone and scanning his laptop screen. The topics veered from detailed wisdom about fundraising to term sheet dynamics and ways of getting screwed on dilution while he simultaneously played coy on whether he'd invest in Adgrok and then solicitously asked about team morale issues. I always steeled myself for those Friday afternoons it was like the last flaming hoop to jump through before the weekend. Not that we had much of one those days. By the time the Adkami storm appeared on the horizon, I felt we had built enough of a rapport to ask him for advice on the matter. In a solicitous email, I mentioned that he seemed well-connected to what we had identified as Adkami's Achilles heel, namely the senior Microsoft deal-making team. In my desperation to find an in with Microsoft, I had stalked people on LinkedIn like some recruiter trying to poach a hire, searching for an intersection point with Microsoft. Samo was one of those highly connected nodes that pepper the valley. You know him, and you're not more than two hops from anybody that matters. Sam Altman assured me he'd try to do the best he could, and promptly cut off the call. A week went by, driving on the 280, I saw his number flash on my phone and pulled over. Sam Altman cannot be dealt with at 80 miles per hour. So I talked to, name redacted, who is Adkami's business development contact at Microsoft. He assures me he brought up the Adgrok issue in one of their meetings with Adkami. He stated it was going to be problematic if Adkami was embroiled in litigation while discussing the Microsoft deal. I almost dropped my phone. This was precisely the decapitated horse's head in Murthy's bed that we needed. Murthy, with his back against the wall, running short of cash and with no saleable product even remotely on the horizon, needed both the accounting and the marketing win of a big infusion of Microsoft money. Weasel that he was, Murthy had an overriding sense of self-preservation and was still rational enough to realize that destroying Adgrok was not worth destroying Adkami in the process. If indeed Microsoft BD had raised a flag about Adgrok, there's no way Adkami could continue the suit. It would be suicidal. Sam, I don't know how to thank you for this. No problem. Click. Confirmation of PG having acted on our behalf was relayed less directly. One of our investor friends had visited Mayfield Capital on unrelated business. Given the open nature of most VC offices, with all conference rooms and partner spaces facing some airy, sunny central area, he could see that Yogan Dalal, the managing partner for the Adkami investment and Silicon Valley notable, was in a conference room having what appeared to be a strained conversation with Murthy. Board meetings or advisory sessions, not that Murthy took advice from anyone, should have taken place at Adkami, not Mayfield, at that stage. That, plus the timing, signaled that this conversation was likely about Adgrok. It seemed that PG had delivered, and Adkami's investors had started putting the squeeze on Murthy, using their moral, not to mention financial, suasion to get Adkami to retire the suit. 
Starting from a point of outright panic verging on imminent rout, Adgrok now had Adkami surrounded. On one side, a potent Valley legal player was fighting the conventional legal battle with every indication we had the wherewithal to stick out a full suit. The Undertaker was firing sharply worded missives at Santa Clara County Court, rebutting Adkami's claims, offering to provide our externally audited code as evidence of innocence, and starting the painful process of hostile depositions, which would be soul-sucking, time-burning confrontations, in which even Murthy would be personally ensnared. On another side, Murthy's money men were likely yelling at him to stop being an asshole and respect unwritten valley rules about not frivolously picking expensive fights with nascent startups. Thanks to PG's expulsion of these money changers from the Temple of Demo Day and what that meant for their future deal flow, the VC's very livelihoods were now at risk due to Murthy's bullshit. And by the way, why aren't you focusing on our investment, the ailing adkami, anyhow? Lastly, the next big partner Murthy critically needed, the last card he had to play as entrepreneur with a troubled startup, was telling him the deal hinged on settling the Adgrok mess, or else. I'd have paid half my stake in Adgrok to look at Murthy's face when he considered the state of Adgrok-Adkami relations. What's it take to do startups? It certainly isn't intelligence. I was in the lower third of my Ph.D. class in physics at Berkeley, and I had to take my preliminary exams three times before I passed. Most of the founders I know are certainly crafty and quick-witted, but compared with some of the certified geniuses I met in academia, they aren't going to win any Fields medals or Nobels. It certainly isn't technical skill. I'm a crappy programmer, and I can hack crude prototypes of finished products at best. Some founders are technical virtuosos, but I suspect most weren't the top students in their respective computer science classes, assuming they even had a formal education. It's not unique product or market vision. Anyone who used Google's ads-buying tool for all of five minutes and then registered that that piece of shit was a $70 billion per year moneymaker could see the need for Adgrok. Some startup ideas were visionary, like Airbnb, but many, like Dropbox, were merely extremely well-executed versions of existing technologies. In my limited experience, there are two traits that distinguish successful startup founders at whatever level of the game, from the forgettably minuscule, for example, Adgrok, to the epic changing, for example, SpaceX. First, the ability to monomaniacally and obsessively focus on one thing and one thing only, at the expense of everything else in life. I lived, breathed, and shad Adgrok. Thanks to focusing on Adgrok, I watched my daughter grow up through the frame of a Skype window while I was in Adgrok's Mountain View shithole. I had no social life outside of schmooze and booze tech events, at which I would wear my Adgrok t-shirt and engage in techno small talk with people I didn't really care about. I had no hobbies or outside activities of any kind, except very occasional trips to the gym. My sailboat, into which I had poured two years of money and weekends to restore, slowly rotted in the sun. I never read anything except the tech press. Movies were out of the question. The ladies? While I was nominally still in a relationship with British Trader, my penis was anatomically equivalent to my coccyx, a purposeless vestige of a bygone era. Second, the ability to take and endure endless amounts of shit. I was raised under the sadistic care of a sister ten years my senior, who delighted in unleashing endless taunts and abuses. My father was a domineering man in every way. I spent years in an all-boys Catholic school, filled with brutish bullies and cold, aloof priests. We did nothing but beat each other up and jerk off. I scraped by on nothing for six years as a penniless grad student in an expensive city and then survived three years on Wall Street's most competitive trading floor during its biggest market catastrophe. Long story short, within the limited purview of white-collar travails, there's nothing I can't take for an extended period of time. You might be asking why I'm being such a buzzkill. There must be some fun in startups, right? Sure, there are times when an entrepreneur's life will make you feel like you've got the world by the tail. You just talk the biggest check you've ever seen out of a respected investor and boom, there the amount appears, as big as life, in your previously barren bank account. You launch a product or write some blog post that goes viral, and for one shining moment, you're the talk of the tech world. But those moments are far outnumbered by the countless moments of gnawing doubt, nauseating anxiety, and endless toil. 
If you've got a great relationship with your co-founders, then that camaraderie can maintain you. In fact, as in sports or war, the overpowering desire to not let down your fellows is often all that keeps you going. But if you have no co-founders, or if that band of brothers relationship isn't there, then the only thing keeping the whole construct going is sheer, stubborn, bloody-mindedness. You get up every morning, get kicked in the face, and come back for more the next day. Unlike maniacal focus, though, which is a personality trait too difficult to mold once in adulthood, this thing, call it grit, perseverance, or whatever, is something that can be learned. If you feel you don't possess that strength within you, then go ride a bicycle across the United States, sail a boat across an ocean, or join the Marines, whatever it takes to build those reserves of mental endurance. Or just jump into the fray, and you might surprise yourself. Incidentally, it helps to have enemies. While love is a beautiful emotion, far more empires have been built, books written, wrongs righted, fights won, and ambitions realized out of vengeful desire to prove some critic wrong or existential dread of some perceived enemy than all the love in the world. Love is grand, but hate and fear last longer. Victory Nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. Winston Churchill, The Story of the Malacand Field Force February 2011 In late October, Adkami's tone completely changed from one of bullying menace to abrupt conciliation. Unsolicited, we received an offer to dismiss the suit immediately. By February, it was all over but the lawyer's fees. We signed some token agreements, comical, infantile reaffirmations of pre-existing agreements we had signed upon getting hired at Adkami. A copy of our code base was to be kept by Fenwick. We sent them a zipped archive the lawyers wouldn't have even known how to open on their Windows machines. It could have been ten gigabytes of bestiality porn for all they knew, had they bothered to check. We even encrypted it for further amusement. Nobody would ever read the officially stored version of Adgrok's code. I sent Murthy one last taunting email when the official termination papers went through. I'd cross paths with him only once more professionally, and never again in person. Footnote. In a wholly deserved gift of fate, Adkami pitched Facebook shortly after I joined. Gokul, knowing I had worked there, passed me the email thread and the decision of whether Facebook should engage with Adkami or not. On the basis of my analysis, Facebook never gave them the time of day. End footnote. I've probably never hated one man so much, other than my father. There's a saying in Spanish, live long enough and you'll watch the funeral procession of your enemy go past your door. It would take a few years, but I'd watch Murthy's funeral all right. In 2014, Adkami would tank definitively, and in that whimpering way of concealed failure, after raising over $130 million in capital, the company disappeared in a fire sale acquisition. Many employees who purchased stock in the company lost their savings in the belief that Adkami would ultimately succeed. Their Stockholm Syndrome lasted to the very end. Murthy passed on to the oblivion he deserved. The only chapter in Silicon Valley history he'll ever have is this one, the one I've written for him. As for Adgrok and the boys, it was time to think about a real launch. By the time Adgrok had managed to free itself from the existential crisis, my relationship with British Trader was suffering under stress and our mutual friction. I was done with her imperious hectoring and stiff upper lip. Living with her en concubinage with Zoe resembled less some bohemian family sitcom and more a stint in the Queen's Army. Her brother actually was an officer in the British Army. The grenadier guards, no less, the chaps in red jackets and towering bearskins, who cut such a figure in front of Buckingham Palace. The household was run to the beat of Pim's Cups, Sunday roasts, marmite in the morning, mincemeat pies for holidays, and listening to the Queen's speech whenever that old hag mouthed some patriotic drivel on the Beeb. British traders' desire to be absolute captain of the ship was fine, but there's only one captain of a ship or company. If she wanted the role, she could maintain the house herself. As if it were yesterday, I recall when the denouement to this budding family saga became clear. It was a Saturday morning, a brief respite from the startup bullshit, car talk blaring on NPR as I made either pancakes or a big omelet. 
that feeling in the air, so rare in my life, of a certain stability and repose, glistening like the bright morning sunlight, and about as fleeting. British Trader and Zoe were traipsing around the backyard, checking on the tomato garden, or possibly the chicken coop. Stepping out the back door, which rattled and clapped shut when you let it go, I spied British Trader coming in carrying Zoe. They had been outside since before I had gotten up, another late night in San Francisco for me. And it was my first sight of Zoe that day. Her sea-blue eyes turning slowly to brown as the end of babyhood approached, the tousled brown hair, the look of impish glee she always wore, even now in youngest childhood. Those cheeks as she grinned in my direction, like nothing else in life, she elicited an unquestioning smile, the sort of smile nothing can wipe off your face. You sure don't smile like that when you see me anymore, British trader quipped, and brushed past me through the door, Zoe bundled in her arms. It was true. The only reason I was still hanging around Alameda was that brown-haired bundle, and soon even that wouldn't be enough. Right around when the Adkami drama was winding down to its victorious conclusion in late 2010, I decided I had had enough of the British barracks room I was living in and announced I was leaving the household and British trader. The announcement was met with all the drama and passion you'd imagine. After the usual fussing and fighting, more heated than usual given the year of accelerated life together, a child, a renovated house, a lawsuit, a company, mostly unplanned, I found a loft sublease in San Francisco. I had declared my intent to abandon the home front no later than December 1st, move my few belongings to Petrero Hill, and focus on our newly liberated startup. On December 3rd, I came back to the house to pack some last belongings, and we fell into that relationship coda of mutual indulgence, part passion, part nostalgia, of which many recent breakup ease are guilty. Fast forward two months later, to February 2011, when Adgrok was rejoicing at the official end of the Adkami War, mockingly going through the motions of our legal obligations under the settlement agreement. Out of nowhere, British trader informs me she is once again pregnant. The calendar math takes us right back to my move-out imbroglio in December, our last tryst after a breakup desert of non-intimacy. After a brief debate, British trader confirms her desire to keep the child, whatever my thoughts on the matter. It occurred to me that perhaps this most recent experiment in fertility, and the first, had been planned on British trader's part, her back up against the menopause wall, a professional woman with every means at her disposal except a willing male partner, in which case I had been snookered into fatherhood via warm smiles and pliant thighs, the oldest tricks in the book. Whether swindler or dupe, we're all either subjects or objects of one or another conspiracy in this world. Our only hope is that the profits from authoring schemes outweigh the costs of being extras in those of others. I'd need a startup per child at this rate. Speaking of which, how did this affect Adgrok? My first thought was to not tell the boys. They'd get more stressed out about it than I was, and I needed them alert and productive for our looming product launch. My second thought was, well, so what? I was already neck-deep in risk. Our return profile, to use Wall Street quant speak, was absolutely binary. Either we succeeded dramatically with a million-dollar outcome, or we ignominiously failed. What was one more child in the mix? I'd have the heir and the spare. A little redundancy, whether in technology or heredity, never hurt. Launching I observed that some men, like bad runners in the stadium, abandon their purposes when close to the goal, while it is at that particular point, more than at any other, that others secure the victory over their rivals. Polybius, Histories March 2011 It had been almost exactly a year since we had been accepted by YC, ten months since the company had been founded, seven months since we had launched a production version of Adgrok, six months since we had raised money, and one month since we had officially buried Murthy in the latrine where he belonged. A launch in our case was more a PR event than a technical one. Our website was already accepting paying customers, and our product had been out in the wild for a while. The boys were launching new features with our most recent release, but really it was no more than the update to a mobile app that you're nagged to make by your smartphone. My role was to make the routine newsworthy. The tech press, even more so than the regular press, 
willingly covered only births, deaths, weddings, and bloody accidents. That is, a new funding round, a startup's collapse, the messier the better, acquisitions, or a nasty scandal, like a founder conflict or a sexual harassment claim. To paraphrase John Bond, an agency guy we had pitched, marketing was like sex, only the losers paid for it. Like losers, we paid for it in this case, hiring a PR agency to juice the metaphorical printing presses for us. The result was a series of endless interviews in such august publications as Internet Retailer and Direct Marketing News. Like a brainwashed Manchurian candidate, I ran through my spiel for the nth time, updated for the new features launching. This was all done under embargo, which is not nearly as exciting as the Cuban version. It's basically the promise, often disrespected, to withhold publication until a set moment in time like a thunderhead unleashing its plague of rain and pent-up electricity all at once, the idea was to trigger the explosion of self-perpetuating media attention that the always self-referential Internet affords. Given the mounting schedule of journalist interviews, plus the new features ready for production, the second week of March was the natural launch window. We wanted whatever media explosion to echo, so we'd go out Monday with the launch. Just one problem, Monday, March 7th, was Zoe's first birthday. It was almost exactly a year since we'd gotten funded, and Zoe had been born right before our epically bad YC interview. As always, when the trade-off was between the startup and anything else, the startup won. Little Zoe wouldn't even remember her first birthday, and if we pulled off this ad grok caper correctly, it would be paying for her Harvard graduation 21 years hence. Zoe, if you're reading this, accept my very late apologies. On Monday, the boys pulled the trigger and deployed the new code. The journalists published their refactored press releases. A small wave of new users signed up, sparking a round of customer support chats that we rotated among ourselves. I tried linking my Google account, but it didn't work. Adgrok was weekly on the tech map for a few days, thanks to our essentially paid-for media coverage. Launching. Inside the Y Combinator lair, a faded drawing on a whiteboard faced the main dining meeting hall. It featured the simple L shape of X and Y axes, along with a squiggle running from left to right, accounting for the passage of time. The height represented how well a startup was doing, and the shape started with a sharp rise from zero, cresting to an apex labeled launch. The peak was followed by a sudden crash and then a low plateau that ran almost the length of the plot. After much flatlining, the curve edged up slightly before dipping again, label Misconfigured Analytics Code, and then increased at a steady pace until Acquisition. The big yawning space between launch peak and gradual takeoff was labeled ominously in large letters, The Trough of Despair. Put yourself in the mind of a startup founder for a moment. You've managed to cobble together a product and maybe some VC money. You've launched, gotten a wave of PR, and everything is firing on all cylinders. You open the analytics dashboard that tracks usage, and you see what seems like an ocean of interested users clicking around and toying with every hard-fought feature you manage to ship. Then a few weeks go by. The media cycle has moved on to other new, shiny things. Your analytics graphs look like the heart rate monitor on a heart attack victim. New user signups have slowed to the trickle they were pre-launch. If you're new at this, you'll have naive models in your head about startup success. Humans like a sense of order and meaning. What happens in Act 2 of a play must have stemmed from Act 1. The good guy wins in the end, and the bad guy is punished. If we see a smiling entrepreneur like Drew Houston of Dropbox on the cover of Fortune, then we assume, A, he deserves to be there due to merit, and B, he got there through a series of rational acts, one triumph following another in a causal chain. However, such fairy tales reveal themselves to be the fantasies they are following a launch. You've spent months and gambled your career on a product, and then after a bit of excitement, you realize what a misshapen and misbegotten piece of shit it really is. This is the crisis that kills 90% or more of startups that manage to survive the initial plagues of founder disagreements, failure to ship code, and failure to raise money. This nearly uncrossable chasm is behind all those what-happened posts on TechCrunch or other tech rags that crop up when some seemingly unstoppable startup suddenly announces it is ceasing operations and giving back what's left of the investor's money. Its founders and management could not negotiate the trough of despair, and like some lost British adventurer trying to cross a forbidding desert, 
the company basically gave up and died. This failure is not due to a mere lack of nerve, of course. It could be a company with a freemium business model that required lots of free users upgrading to paid memberships that couldn't figure out how to get all those users in the first place. Or it could be a services company that had plenty of users but couldn't figure out how to scale its operations, for example, a house cleaning service that couldn't recruit and keep quality cleaners. There are infinite reasons for not making it across the trough, but it almost always involves some impediment to paying users being scalably acquired or serviced. What's the solution? The trendy answer is that you need to find what's called product market fit, which is a fancy way of saying that you need to build a thing people are willing to pay for. It turns out that's pretty hard because you don't know what people will pay for until you ask them to. And if what you're building is truly novel, there's no history for you to go on. Fortunately, the iteration cycle in a software business is fast. We don't need to retool milling machines here. And from some approximately correct starting point, we can converge on a final product, almost like successive guesses at the solution to an equation. The quicker we iterate, the more steps we can take in the direction of this mythical point of perfect fit. Each such step costs money in wages, server costs, and lost time. When that cash balance goes to zero, the game is over and we've lost. If, however, we get close enough to that perfect product market fit in which users pay more money for the product than it costs to operate and than it costs to acquire those users to begin with, we've escaped the financial freefall. Recall our cliché about startups being like building a plane after jumping off a cliff. Getting to a positive run rate, as it's called, is like finally getting the wings on, firing the engine, and watching the contraption actually maintain or gain altitude, no matter how badly built it may be. Based on our revenue and usage numbers, Adgrok was not even remotely there. What awaited us were months and months of the trough, stretching endlessly before us.